I'm going to invite the uh, children. The children up through, uh, I believe, grade four can now leave. They can depart. Uh, the rest of us, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19. We're actually going to start just from a contextual standpoint, just to give you a, a picture of where we have been. I appreciate Ryan preaching last week. Um, I appreciate, you know, Tyler, you know, doing a baptism this week. It's, it's good to have a couple new teaching elders, newly ordained. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. Um, last week, I was at a conference on trauma, along with um, my wife and, and Jenny Lichty, and uh, Carol Nye came along as well. Uh, it was really good. We also were in Virginia, so we got to see our family uh, back there. So that's where we have been. We're going to start in John chapter um, 18, verses 28, and here's why. I want you to get the sense that Pilate, who Jesus is being brought back to, is having a really, really hard time of this. As a matter of fact, he has to go in and out, you know, constantly going in and out of talking uh, amongst themselves and with Jesus inside, and then he has to go outside to speak to the Jews. And I don't know about you, but uh, anybody here have a, a regular habit of getting into your car, starting up the engine, and realizing that you've forgotten something inside that you have to go back inside for? Anybody do that? It's really, really frustrating. You know, like I always get into my car, I start it up, I begin to back, and I'm like, oh, I forgot this, and then I have to go in. What's really bad is when you have to do it twice, because then you just look foolish. You're like, you just really weren't ready to leave for the day. Um, but for Pilate, as he's speaking to Jesus, you know, he takes Jesus outside, then he goes back inside. And so it's really interesting to begin Pilate's confusion, and, and really, one, one of the things I want you to see is that Pilate says three different times, I find no guilt in him. Regarding Jesus, I find no guilt in him. That's said three different times. So um, let's read the Word of God, starting in John chapter 18, verse 28. I'll focus on chapter 19, verses 1 through 16, but I want to give context. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters, so they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what, ac what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. 
And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to him, said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to, be, ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat, a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. And we all say, The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Would you pray with me? Fathers, we come to your word, Holy Spirit, we pray, Lord, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds so that we might know what it means to follow Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to behold our Savior. And Father, I pray, Lord, for those who are listening, Father, that you would give them attentive hearts, that they might listen and have their faith increased. And Father, for myself, I pray, Lord, that you would give me clarity of thought, lucidity of speech and that I might be able to rightly divide the word of God. Father, would you help us? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, when we think about the Gospel of John, we think about why was the Gospel of John written? Again, when we, when we come, John gives us this answer in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. So why does John write what he writes? He writes it for this reason. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, meaning the whole body of work that John is giving us, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That you might have life in his name. Now, brothers and sisters, have you ever been let down after being hyped to see something amazing? And then when you got there, it just wasn't very miraculous. It wasn't really that great. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, I'll give you two examples. They both happened in Paris for me. Um, the first is, have you ever uh, gone to the Louvre and you're really excited and you go to the Louvre and one of the things that you really, really want to see is the Mona Lisa. Anybody else here really disappointed with the Mona Lisa? Like you get there and you're like, this is it? It is, you know, 30 inches by 21 inches, it's surrounded, you're far, far away, and you're like, and everybody's taking pictures of it and snapping pictures of it, and you're like, the most famous painting in the world, and you get there and you're like, oh, 
this is disappointing. Very, very disappointing. Now, in another way, there's a painting in the Louvre that's not as disappointing. The painting, I think, I think that the painting in the Louvre that is the most amazing painting is the wedding feast at Cana. And when you go to the Louvre and you see the wedding feast of Cana, it is um, about 32 feet long and 22 feet high. And that wedding feast of Cana, again, I didn't have any expectations, but I got there and it was just miraculous and beautiful. But you know what it is to, to you know, have this hype that occurs and to be let down. I mean, some of you were thinking you were going to be let down with about two minutes to go in a particular game that will remain nameless that happened yesterday in the rain. I mean, you thought that it was all going to be over, right? You thought, oh, here we go again. It's all going to fall apart again. And then, you know, it all worked out. And then the, apparently, you know, here in Lawrence, the sacrament after a big game is to destroy the goalpost and then throw it into a lake, which I just think is absurd. I mean, like, why, shouldn't you take that and put it up somewhere? I mean, shouldn't you take that and like, it wouldn't be great to like put that up in like uh, in front of someplace. Like it would be really, really fun. Like if somebody like got that and just put it here in the church, you know, like field, you know, but I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying do that. I'm not saying do that. I'm just saying, you know, why throw it in the lake? You know, I don't know. But what John is saying and what, what he's saying to you about Jesus is he's, he's saying this. He goes, Jesus will live up to the hype. Everything that Jesus has done and is doing for you, he will not disappoint you. You may be disappointed in other people. You may be disappointed in other events or places in your life, but you will not be uh, disappointed in Jesus. You see, when he says, behold the man, we think about this. The, when, when John the Baptist first saw him earlier in the gospel, he says, behold the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. You see, to trust in him is to believe in him, to walk as he walked and to love as he loved. And I want you to know that the glory of our Lord Jesus is brighter than the noonday sun. That's what John wants us to understand. His love is deeper than the sea. His forgiveness, which cost him his life, will so refresh and transform your soul that it will lead you to sing to sing of the glory of Jesus. And what we find is it, it, it's a really interesting turn of the phrase when we see this, this term, behold the man, because what Pilate does is Pilate mocks Jesus by, um, by um, putting a, a crown of thorns upon his head and a purple robe, and then he brings him out to, to the crowd, and he says, behold the man. Now in Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 6 in the Old Testament, this is a, a post-exilic prophet. And this prophet is talking about the glory of the one who would come, the Messiah who would come. In Zechariah um, chapter 6 verse 9, it says this, actually I'll, I'll skip down to verse 11 because you don't need to know a bunch of names. But in verse 11 it says this, take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. 
And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helam, Tobijah, Jedediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. Now, this, this prophet, um, Zechariah, is speaking about this priestly king who would come this priestly king who would come and would sit upon the throne. And when we think about this, this Joshua, you know, when we think about Joshua, the Greek um, name of Joshua is Jesus. That's the beauty of this. Like speaking about one who would come and who would sit on the throne and be the high priestly king. And he would, you know, take upon himself um, this role of priest. Behold the man, Jesus. Now, um, James Smith wrote, um, he's an old, um, old, old um, dead guy who we like to quote sometimes, and he says this regarding behold the man. And I want you to think about this in terms of Jesus and in terms of what he did and who he is. They scourge him, crown him with thorns, clothe him with an old purple robe, hit him with their fist, and now Pilate brings him forth saying, behold the man. In his whole life, He was holy, harmless, undefiled, full of mercy, and went about doing good. Yet because he condemned sin and required submission to God's righteousness, he was hated, persecuted, and murdered. Let us behold this man. He exercised all the virtues which could adorn humanity. See his meekness, gentleness, patience, faith, fortitude, pity, and perfect love to God and man. O lovely character, O perfect pattern of holiness, behold and adore him heartily. Behold, and trust in him implicitly. My soul, behold the man. See his grief-stricken countenance, his battered frame, his breaking heart, his bleeding brow. He is enduring all this for you. Behold him, and do not doubt his love, nor question his veracity, nor fear your foes, nor dread your heavenly Father's wrath. Behold him as the proof of God's love to you, the confirmation of all the promises made to you, the pledge of all the blessings set before you. Behold him and give yourself afresh unto him. Behold him until a deep impression is made upon your heart and the love of sin departs. Behold him when death stares you in the face and the grave is ready for you. Behold and love him more. Behold and imitate him more. Behold and serve him more. That's what John wants. When John is giving what what, what he writes, he wants you to behold Jesus who takes away the sins of the world. He wants you to behold all that he does, the mockery, the, the, the cross, and we'll get to the cross next week, but he wants you to behold Jesus and fall more deeply in love with him. Had a, had a friend of mine, uh, it, was, it was really funny, I was at a conference last week and, and, I, and I met an old friend um, who, had, who I went to seminary with a long time ago at this point. And uh, Dave uh, came up to me and, and I said, Dave, how are you doing? And he's had a really hard time in ministry. He said multiple calls, you know, he's lost a call. He had a son who had a heart transplant, probably needs to have another heart transplant. He's had a really, really hard go of it. And he said, but, but something miraculous happened when he was down in Tampa. He had, he had lost his job as a pastor. Uh, he actually, he went to go work for his best friend, 
who was a pastor, his best friend fired him. And then like a year later, his best friend he found out was, was uh, having immoral actions uh, with, and then lost his job. And it was just a big mess, just a big mess, right? Well, in the midst of all this, Dave, um, Dave meets this, this navigator staff person who'd been a navigator staff person for a long time. And, um, and he went up to this, this guy and he said, hey, I, went, I went up to him, you know, I have a seminary degree. Matter of fact, he has two master's degrees, a master's in counseling, a master's in divinity. And so he goes up to this man and he says to him, you know, like, I like you, you know, and I know that you, you come alongside guys, but, you know, I think it might be cool for you and I to hang out a little bit. And, and Dave said, I kind of went to him with a little bit of pride, like, like, how great is it that me, a pastor, wants to hang out with you, just this guy, you know, discipling others. And he goes, and I, and I don't understand my folly. So this guy meets with me, and he asked me this question. And he said, hey, Dave, what, what, what's, what's the gospel? And he said, so I begin to you know, speak to him about the gospel, the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus. I talk to him about redemption and justification and sanctification and glorification. And I speak to him about all these things. And he just kind of listening to me, shaking his head. And then he says, well, well Dave, who's Jesus. And he goes, well, you know, Jesus is the eternal son of God who became man and so was and continues to be a God, a man, and two distinct persons in one nature forever. You know, and he begins to go off, you know, on the shorter catechism. He just kind of continues on talking about this. And the guy's just looking at him. And he said, he said, I went for like 10 minutes on the first answer of the gospel. I went for another, like probably five minutes. Just, he goes, I was good, George. I would have passed any seminary exam that was out there. I would have been ordained in any presbytery in the PCA. I was good. And then he said this, the guy looked at him and said, you know, Dave, I think I can help you because one of the things that you never mentioned, you never mentioned a relationship with Jesus. You didn't talk to me about Jesus as your friend, as Jesus as the one that you run to, as Jesus as the one that you lean hard upon, as the one that you will give your very life for. And Dave said, huh. And so they began a, a discipleship relationship, a guy who had finished seminary, who had been ordained. And he said, in the midst of that relationship, I began to behold Jesus. And I began to read scripture in a different way. Brothers and sisters, I don't want you to just be, be loving and beholding Jesus with your mind. I want you to give your heart to him. Like, I want you to open up your heart and say, Lord Jesus, I love you. What can I do for you? You have done so much. You are my friend, my best friend, and I want to walk with you. I want to abide with you. I want to rest in your arms. I want you to comfort me when, I'm, when things are hard. Like, that's, that's what John is saying. Now, those who encounter Jesus, who behold the man, um, some come to faith in Jesus and believe him. You know, the gospel, Ed Welch says this. He says, the gospel is the story of God covering his naked enemies, bringing them to the wedding feast, and then marrying them rather than crushing them. I mean, that's the gospel. And in the midst of that, we get this relationship with God through Christ, who is our Savior, who is our King, who is the prophet and the priest, but he's also our friend, and we love him. Now, in the midst of this, I want you to see, let's, let's move to Pilate as we look at chapter 19. Um, now, in the midst of this, we know that it is the time of the Passover, and that within any um, Jewish home, there would be a three-day waiting period while they actually inspected the lamb that would be the Passover lamb. 
Now, in a similar way, Jesus had three years in front of everyone to um, tell them that, you know, he is, you know, the perfect lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But if you read this section, the thing that comes over and over again, that when Pilate encountered Jesus, look, look in, in verse 38 of chapter 18, he says, I find no guilt in him. And then again, in verse four, he says, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And then again, in, in verse um, six, he says, take him yourselves and crucify him for I find no guilt in him. Now I do find this, let me just, uh, one, one brief excursus, um, that is interesting because the reason that Pilate has to go from outside you know, to talk to the Jews, to inside in, the, in his palace, in his praetorium, in his you know, palace and fortress, is he has to go back and forth, is because when you look up at verse um, 28 of chapter 18, it says, it was early morning, they themselves, meaning that the, the um, Jewish rulers and the high chief priests, they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. And I, I love what one commentator who quoted Matthew 23, he calls them the blind, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You know, they're, they're saying, oh, we don't want to defile ourselves for the Passover, but we want to unjustly murder a man right before the Passover. So because of that, you know, G, uh, Pilate has to go back and forth between the Jews on the outside and he, and he goes back into his palace. It's It's fascinating. But again, when we think about Jesus being sinless, we think about Jesus being um, the righteous Lamb of God, we think about it in this way. In Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is baptized, we hear the voice of the Father who says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We see that in Acts chapter 2, his disciples describe him, and again, I'm describing who Jesus is, as holy and righteous in 1 John. In 1 Peter, it says, without blemish or spot. And even Judas, after betraying Jesus, Judas in Matthew chapter 27 actually says, he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But Pilate three times in 1834, 1904, and 1906 says, I find no guilt in him. Now that is a, an astounding statement. And that, I think, is the struggle that we wage every day. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, is this. You know what's right, but you don't always do what's right. There's this question of conscience that is going on in the midst of Pilate as he tries to figure out, how do I get out of this? Matter of fact, in another gospel, his wife Drusilla actually says, have nothing to do with this innocent man. He's trying to remove himself from this, and, and yet he can't. He capitulates. That's the struggle that we have today. We wage every day to do the right thing for the right reason for the right person or to capitulate, to lose our integrity, to become fractured. That's really what it means, you know. I mean, the, again, the idea of uh, integrity is this. It comes from this word integer, which is a whole number. And so when you lose your integrity you are no longer a whole number, or rather, you're no longer a whole person. So in a sense, you're becoming fractured, just a piece of yourself. And I think that that is the struggle and the fight that we have every day. And in the midst of being fractured, there's no joy in that. There's no lasting peace that comes from this type of life. 
And Jesus has declared, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, this is the, the hard part for us. And I, and I don't think I'm the only one who does this, okay? You know the right thing. You know what you're supposed to do, but you don't do it. And in the midst of doing the wrong thing, you actually feel guilty and ashamed because you're not doing the right thing. And the thing that you were doing, like I'll give you a silly example, right? Um, let's say you know, you're... you're, you're um, your wife makes a bunch of cookies, right? And she makes them for, you know, like maybe a, a baby shower or something like that. And you're not going to go to a baby shower because, you know, you're a guy, whatever. And so you go, and you, maybe you steal a couple of cookies, right? You know, like, and like the first, no, I'm not saying this has ever happened to me. I'm just saying, you know, that maybe one of you sinners might have done this, okay? Um, but in the midst of grabbing those or, or stealing those or doing something that you know you shouldn't do, there might be just a moment of brief joy in the midst of that. But there's also something you're like, I shouldn't have done that. Like there's something, again, this is a silly example, but, but it's a real example. Doing, knowing what is the right thing to do, but not doing it. When we do that, we actually, or, or, or quite frankly, when we sing of the glories of Christ, and we sing about obeying his commandments and loving Jesus, and then we depart and we don't do his commandments, we eschew his commandments. We put them off. We make a mockery of Jesus in a similar way that those Roman soldiers who crowned him with thorns and put a purple robe upon him and mocked him. That's a hard thing. And I know that, you know, you guys do this every day because I do it too, right? Like, this is, by the way, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. Actually, I am. I'm trying to make you feel bad, okay? I want you to feel the gravity of your sin. I want you to feel the guilt of not doing what you're supposed to do, you know, or doing what you're not supposed to do, but then there's all these things that you should be doing that you don't do. But then I want you to, I want you to see the cross of Christ, and I want you to behold the man who loves you and gave himself so that you might be forgiven and that you might be reconciled. And I want you to be motivated to obey out of love, not out of fear, but out of love because of all that Jesus has done for us and because he is our friend and our savior. You know, Pilate capitulated. Pilate knew that he should have nothing to do with Jesus, but he did not want to do the right thing. I mean, for us, this is a, a huge question. You know, are we going to actually do the right thing when nobody's watching? Or will the fear of man be, that carries us along, and again, the crowd here, the Jewish crowd was carrying him along. Are we willing to stand against the crowd of the world's wisdom to stand up for what is right and true and good and beautiful? It's hard because we want to be liked. We want to be a part of, of, of the crowd. And yet, when we fear man more than we fear God, we worship ourselves or we worship another. It's, it's a hard thing. But Pilate, not only did he not find any guilt with him, but, but notice, you know, in verse 12, 
that Pilate actually wanted to remove the responsibility from him. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. So Pilate is doing everything he can. He has a crisis of conscience, and so then he has a a crisis of responsibility. He's he's trying to escape the responsibility that he has. He says, I don't want this anymore. Matter of fact, in another place, he actually, in another gospel, well, we actually, I've washed my hands of this, which means I have nothing to do with this anymore. That's that's where we get that, that, um, that, that saying, that phrase. I wash my hands of this. I want nothing to do with it. I'm taking, I'm, I'm no longer going to take responsibility for this. But, but here's the deal, man. Like you and I have lots of responsibility. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're a dad or a mom, you've got lots of responsibility. If you're a husband or a wife, you've got a lot of responsibility. If you're a friend, if you're a Christian, you're, you're, you have a lot of responsibility. And yet there's, there's times... If you're a son or a daughter, you have responsibility, all of those. And so I think that you can find yourself in one of those, right, of what I just said. You can find yourself there. And yet there are times in our lives that we want to remove ourselves from the responsibility of doing what is right. Because doing what is right is often hard. And I don't know about you, I don't like doing hard things. I like doing easy things. I like doing fun things. I like doing joyful things. Hard things, though, difficult things, they're going to put me out. I would much rather wash my hands of those things to remove myself from the responsibility of doing that, escaping the responsibility. Now, what we find is that oftentimes, again, we want to remove ourselves from responsibility And yet God has called us to a variety of of roles in our lives. But I want you to look, uh, go back up to um, um, verse uh, 39. This is interesting. Because let's talk about responsibility in light of this person named Barabbas. In verse 39, it says, when, again, you know, Pilate's trying to sort of get out of this idea that he has to crucify Jesus. But he says, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber, or in the Greek sometimes it's um, an insurrectionist. He was one who was um, a warrior, insurrectionist, really a terrorist, a a terrorist from a Jewish terrorist against the Roman uh, governmental controls. And so, so I want you to think about this. I mean, essentially, it, it, this, is, this is crazy. It's, it's like, and, I, and I'm not going to do this justice here, but it's like if, if we came up and we said, hey, who do you want us to release to you? Do you want us to release to you Osama bin Laden or Billy Graham? And they go, we want you to release Osama bin Laden. Release him. Crucify Billy Graham. Crucify him for all of his crusades and his Jesus-loving, his, his Christianity. But with Barabbas, what's, what's so interesting about Barabbas, and this is, we don't get it all, but, but again, this detail is included here. It's included in other places in the Gospels. So why is this detail here? I think there are a couple reasons. But let me, let me set the stage. Barabbas is a, a prisoner, and he was imprisoned in the Tower of Antonia some 1,500 feet away. Yeah, 1,500 feet away. So he's not real close to um, Pontius's, or Pontius Pilate's praetorium or where he is. And so he can't really hear 
what's going on from Pilate's perspective. But you know what he does hear from 1,500 feet away? He hears the crowd saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Now, who do you think Barabbas is thinking that they're talking about? I'm, I'm sure, and I'm taking a little bit of liberty here, but I think that they, he probably thinks that they're talking about him. And at this point, you know, think about Barabbas and think about the Roman soldiers who he's just heard the crowd yell, crucify him, crucify him. And now you hear the, 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 the footsteps of the Roman soldiers approach your cell in the Tower of Antonia. And you realize that this is now the moment when you will lose your life. And rather than being put in handcuffs or, or you're taken out into the daylight and you're set free. While the whole crowd is now following this person named Jesus who is carrying a cross. So in the midst of the daylight, you are set free, but another has taken your place on the cross. Now, when we think about this, there's really only one person in the world, in the history of the world, where we can say physically, Jesus took their place on the cross. That person was Barabbas. But in terms of the atonement, in terms of this, this idea of substitutionary atonement, making amends for sin, this is who we see. We see that this, this person, Barabbas, is now set free from everything that he did. All of the things that he was responsible for are now placed upon Jesus. And Jesus takes his place. Again, when I, when I talk about responsibility, certainly there are times when, when we want to wash our hands of the responsibility that we have for what we do. And there are also times where we want to wash our hands of the responsibility that we have for our own sins. But I'm here to tell you that you are responsible for every rash word you say. You're responsible for every immoral or sinful action you commit you are responsible. And it's this doctrine, this, this beautiful doctrine, this doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning that a penalty is paid, a penalty that you and I deserve. And this substitution, this substitution means that another takes our place and takes the penalty for our sins. You see, that the reality is, is that for every sin that you ever commit, it has to be paid. There is a punishment that is necessary to be paid for that sin because a holy, righteous, and good God must punish sin. And he has declared that either you will answer for your sins or through your faith and belief, Jesus will answer for your sins in your place as a substitute being penalized for you. And when that happens, your sins are atoned for it means that we are now reconciled to God. You know, when we think about this, this Barabbas, again, who's in the Tower of Antonia, who's in this prison of his own sins, I mean, that, that is such a metaphor for who we are, trapped in our own sins. And what happens is because of Jesus, the chains are broken, and we are set free to live in union with Christ. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of the gospel. Again, you know, this, this idea of the, the beauty 
of, of the gospel is the gospel is the story of God covering his naked enemies, bringing them to the wedding feast, and then marrying them rather than crushing them. I think about that when I think about this table that is set before us. You know, this table that is set before us, it, it represents, you know, Jesus, you know, his body given for us. This bread represents his body given for us. This, this cup represents the new covenant in his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he declares that as you come and as you partake, know that you have been redeemed and you have been reconciled by a penal substitutionary atonement. That there was no guilt to be found in Jesus. He was the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he invites all those who trust and believe in him to come and to partake. And, and here's the, the problem is that I know that there are those of you who have who've wanted to remove yourself from responsibility. There are those of you who this week, you have done things that you know you shouldn't have done. You you have not obeyed God's law. And Jesus says, I have paid for all of those sins. You know, the, the, the beauty of Christ is that he takes away our guilt and he takes away our shame so that we can come to the table. Again, we, we, are, not, we are his naked enemies who he clothes and then welcomes us to a wedding feast and then he marries us and gives us relationship with himself. That's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of a relationship with Jesus. If you don't know who Jesus is, then I would ask that you don't partake of this, but rather you find an elder up front, and you say, can you help me understand who Jesus is? If you, you have questions about who Jesus is, what he's done, how you're called to live, what the Bible says, we would love to meet with you and talk with you. Come talk to me, come talk to one of our staff. Would you uh, pray with me? Father in heaven, we know that this bread will always remain bread and this juice will always remain juice. But Father, we pray, Lord, that you would spiritually show up, that your, your means of grace are given to us so that you might pour forth grace upon your people over and over again as a good, good father who gives to his children. Father, we are given the signs and seals of the covenant of grace. And Father, we have um, seen a baptism and that is a beautiful thing. But Father, now we get to, to partake um, of communion. And Father, what does it mean that we get to commune with you? Father, this is a foretaste of what heaven will be like. It is a, a joy to come as the people of God. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would, you would cause us to believe and that you would just, again, pour forth grace upon grace upon us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.